welcome to another episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Ohad Samet, co-founder and CEO of TrueAccord. Debt collection is a massive market worth almost $15 billion that has experienced little innovation over the last century. Unfortunately, most debt collections are a one-size-fits-all approach of harassing collection calls and visits, demanding payments, without any flexibility or customization. True Accord is the digital debt collection agency that's turning the industry on its head, utilizing data, machine learning, and behavioral analytics, a far cry from the traditional method. During COVID, this service has been changing the lives of people around the country. Ohad and I cover how True Accord came to be, why he chose Kansas City as the company's second HQ, a three-question challenge he guarantees none of our listeners can answer, how he approaches partnerships, and why incentive and mission alignment are so critical to a company's success. We also throw in a rapid-fire question set at the end. And with that, let's get started. Hi, Ohad, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you as a guest today. Thanks for having me. Good day to everyone. So where are you residing at the moment? Where have you been quarantined the last few months? I'm kind of stuck in Sweden right now. Uh, split my time between Sweden and the US. And uh, now with COVID, basically not going anywhere. So like the rest of us. And where exactly in Sweden are you? It's a suburb called Stuxund. It's just a few minutes outside of uh, Stockholm. Kind of a suburb here. Uh, pretty calm. And... Um, you could almost uh, pretend like nothing's going on. Almost. Until almost. you uh, turn on any sort of news. Exactly. So to begin, could you just quickly walk us through your background and take us up until you found a true accord? Yeah. I have been in machine learning for financial services for 15 years now, I think. Almost 16. I started as the head of analytics for a company called Fraud Sciences. We did machine learning for fraud prevention in e-commerce. We got acquired by PayPal in 2008. That was in Israel because our models were better than theirs. And that, that acquisition story is actually pretty fun. And um, that turned into PayPal Israel. And PayPal moved me over to the Bay Area in 2009, where in 2010, I started working on a few projects. And two of them became companies. One is called Signified, kind of a fraud sciences 2.0 still running. And the other was called Analyze. They did machine learning for consumer credit underwriting. And Analyze got acquired by Klarna, which is now a well-known company in the U.S. At the time, it was only in Europe, expanding from Sweden to the rest of Europe. And I was uh, Klarna's chief risk officer for two years, where I learned a lot of things that got me to want to start through Accord. And then in 2013, I left and started through Accord. And I've been working on through Accord ever since. Um, we raised our first round of funding at the end of 2013. We launched at the end of 2014 and have been growing and evolving since. So I want to circle back to that funny story you mentioned about fraud sciences getting acquired by PayPal. What exactly happened? Oh, yeah. It's, um, you know, acquisitions are always interesting. Maybe that's evolved now, but uh, both in, at fraud sciences and at Analyze, when we got acquired, it was uh, a lot of chance, a lot of luck. Fraud sciences specifically, we were raising around and the investors, Redpoint, sent us to uh, do some due diligence with the CTO of PayPal, who in time became the CEO. And the guy said, well, if, if this is real, I don't want to partner with you. I want to acquire you. And that turned into a very long negotiation. Some of it 
actually captured in a chapter in a book called Startup Nation about startups in Israel. It's the first chapter and ended up in an acquisition and I think went well for everyone because risk at PayPal is currently, I think at least partially managed right out of Tel Aviv. So that's pretty cool. Got it. So, you know, you did your time at these various companies, big and small, getting them acquired, then in a slightly more traditional executive role at Klarna. How did these experiences bring you to the idea for True Accord? So when I was chief risk officer at Klarna, first, what I understood is I had been focused on underwriting or making fraud decisions, right? Do you let this transaction through or not? And the reality is that the growing percentage is more and more business moved online and is moving online. The growing percentage of what we call fraud is not really fraud. It's consumers misunderstanding, it's consumers, in the case of lending, unable to pay, but not maliciously, just circumstances have changed. What we now call abuse used to be called friendly fraud when consumers use their own identity, but change their mind. That's a lot. And it turns out that the signals for detecting that are very different than signals for detecting someone's going to default or someone's going to be a fraudster. And if you don't really operate servicing, if you don't really try to collect back and ask for your money back from people, you're not going to hit your, your numbers and you're going to fail at your job as a chief risk officer. And as we started doing that, I was just stunned by how backwards it was. Basically, a lot of vendors who just want to hire a lot of people, inexperienced people, pay them low base, high commission, put them on the phones, say good luck, fire the uh, bottom non-performing 15% and have high turnover and hope for the best. Didn't sound like a good solution. And we started a company based on three ideas three hypotheses. One, market's moving away from this, right? This way of collecting or servicing accounts is dead and doesn't know it yet. Consumers are not going to answer phones, not answering letters. Regulators don't like it. It's one. Two, we know how to solve this with machine learning and marketing technologies. Basically, flipping the model, turning as many human-to-human interactions into human-to-machine interactions, putting the control in the hand of the consumer that needs to pay back, and then leading them with technology into making the decision they want to make and kind of giving them the flexibility that they need to repay. And three, we believe, and this is something that I learned at Klana that is extremely strong, that if you meet consumers at that point where others don't help them because they don't know how or they don't want to, that both happen, and you give them good service and you help them, you create a strong brand affinity and a sense of partnership with the consumer that you can see in our online reviews that will allow you to have an ongoing relationship with the consumer that's way beyond just, hey, you had a debt and we helped you pay. So then what is really the one-liner on what True Accord's solution is for these challenges? And then how does the product really work? At the basis of it, what True Accord offers is a machine learning-based, digital-first, mobile-first servicing solution for overdue debt. So a company that's owed money, whether it's an e-commerce company or a lender or a bank, will say, hey, Joe Smith owes me $1,000 through Accord. Here's their contact details. Go. And we contact Joe Smith and we say, hey, uh, we're through Accord. You owe this client $1,000. How can we help you? And we like to think about it. It's almost like an e-commerce paradigm, right? We're selling pay now, pay later, pay less than 100%. Subscribe to a recurring payment plan to pay for this product. And the product is, I want to repay my debt. And everything is about creating a relationship with the consumer, creating trust, giving them agency, and putting them in the driver's seat so that they decide to engage when they're ready. 
So how does the customer see you? Is it a white label platform or is it all True Accord branded? The vast majority is True Accord branded. It's what's called third-party servicing. So the emails, the texts, the letters, the very, very rare phone calls are from True Accord. And when they call in, which is that's the so 96% of our resolutions are completely automated and don't involve a person. And the 4% that involve a person, vast majority, I'm talking 99.9%, are inbound. They call our call center in Kansas City or email. Actually, 80% of the inbound is email. And they talk to a call center person who doesn't, you know, making commission from them paying. So it's a very, very different experience for them. Can you walk us through the process from True Record's point of view when you receive these new collection claims? And then how are you really assessing the consumer's likelihood to pay? What goes into it? So it's a very interesting, very complex situation because we're basically, not to get to technical, but we're basically operating a special ledger for the lender. The lender is saying that here's a special type of accounts that I don't want to handle myself. You take them, they transfer them to us. Uh, sometimes we're just uploading a CSV to a portal. And of course, the bigger ones, either direct integration into our APIs or more complex integrations if it's a large financial institution. And they give us the accounts and then they need updates. There's an exchange of information daily. This is what happened with the account on our side. This is what happened with the account on our side so that we have a complete view. And from that moment, we start communicating with the consumer. One of the differences is that we don't buy, say, credit information and try to go after, we don't go after anyone, but like try to reach out and communicate with consumers uh, who have more money. Because we have digital communications and because we don't use credit data to distinguish, we reach out to consumers, usually with an email. And from that point on, it's the consumer's engagement with us. Did they open an email? Did they click? Did they browse? Did they respond to text message? And so on and so forth. That determines how we adjust our strategy. And the cool thing is that there's an actual machine learning based engine that's patented that we developed in house. It's based on interactions with 14 million consumers that learns from that behavior and adjusts. It's not a bunch of rules, there's no mechanical Turk. It's an actual system that learns from consumer behavior. How have you seen that system evolve over time? Did you see maybe you were first over-indexing on text messages or emails and then the balance changing over time? Absolutely. The channels that are available to the system, the content that's available in each channel. Sometimes my design team still digs up old emails that I wrote in 2013 to make fun of me. The design, the design of everything, right? We moved from 20% mobile to 85% of our traffic from mobile devices and tablets. So mobile first design and a lot of focus on page load speed and so on. The constant motion from heuristics-based decision-making to probabilistic model-based decision-making, a lot of things. And you see the slope of individual of each incoming batch of debt in each incoming cohort of debt of consumers and their accounts. You see the behavior of the system change because it's getting better at presenting consumers with what they want early in the process, presenting them with the content that's going to put things in context for them and they're not surprised about us contacting them and what the account is and so on. It's better at resolving, oh, I have a question. How about I resolve this online instead of having an exchange? So it's a combination of more data and continuous experimentation in UX and improving the usability of the system. 
So luckily, I'm not too familiar with the debt collections process, but the technology, analytics, and thoughtfulness that's going into this is really impressive. I know we mentioned it earlier, but can you quickly compare this method to the traditional model that's been used for so long from the consumer's point of view so that you know they fall behind on their payments? And then what would the old model really be doing for them from there? Yeah, I like to... In the easiest way, the old model is like a telemarketing campaign. That's what it is, right? Low base, high commission, 500 phone uh, accounts per person, call these accounts four to five times per day per phone number, get the consumer on the phone on a cold call and try to get them to pay. A lot of times people talk about abuse in debt collection. Let's be clear. These are the good guys that do everything according to the rules and they're not trying to abuse anyone, but under the best circumstances, it's just a horrible experience. Add to that that by the end of the month, the collectors that are not making their goals start being a little bit more aggressive and pushing on the phone. It's just not a great experience. With us, again, it's like an automated e-commerce experience. It's based on your behavior. It's uh, If you're not responsive, it's up to three attempts per week, digital, that you can control. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. But at the end of the day, it puts the control in your hands. 25% of engagements are in hours where, from a legal perspective, you can't even operate a collections call center. So people come home after their second shift or they want to engage whenever. They get on their phone. They make their changes. Uh, They even, once they've subscribed to a payment arrangement, they can change it on their phone. The UX is just night and day. They don't need to talk to a person. Given the consumer centricity of your mission, it's definitely a more empathy-driven approach. Then how does True Accord measure its successes and what are maybe the most important KPIs that you think about? Well, at the end of the day, we only get a chance to work with consumers if lenders give us the chance to work with consumers and lenders care about getting paid. So if we didn't offer a service that actually helped consumers pay more, we would not be competing. Just being nice doesn't work. The good news is we get 75% to 100% more people to pay from an average group of consumers. Now, each and every one of them pays a little bit less on average than they would with a call center because we don't hammer them until they get scared and they pay. They get on customized, sometimes even like very customized and very uneven payment arrangements. And over time, that adds up, right? That compounds with more and more consumers paying. So that's number one, our liquidation rate, how much we collect. We collect 30 to 50% more than a traditional call center and sometimes up to five to seven times more, especially in e-commerce type balances that are smaller and consumers need a lot more handholding. That's number one. Number two, our adherence to compliance and all those issues where we create like a fraction of the issues that the regular collection agency creates. Obviously, again, when consumers like you, when your NPS is high, when your reviews are good, just don't end up in the same hole. And finally, we measure ourselves by consumer feedback. That's an internal measurement. Uh, We have not, we will get to a point where we teach the industry to think more about NPS and collections. It hasn't gotten there yet, but we think about it and we put a lot of emphasis on uh, consumer feedback, both quantitative and qualitative. Oha, this was a really good overview of True Accord and the product and really got to, you know, a good level that I think we can all understand. So switching gears, you released a report this summer called Consumer Debt in the Age of COVID-19. Can you walk us through some of your biggest takeaways? One that you know really hit at the ethos of the company was there was a near instantaneous uptick in debt payments as the first wave of checks hit bank accounts, which 
maybe is not what everyone expected. Yeah, it was really cool. Consumers choosing to pay and they choosing to pay us first because they have an affinity to the brand. Think about it. I mean, in debt collection, they have an affinity to a brand. It's pretty cool. We like it. We definitely developed a lot of additional features to allow consumers to ask for a break from payments and so on. I think everyone expected a wave of delinquencies. The stimulus came in. It was very gratifying to see consumers not falling into defaults. And I hope this will continue. I think maybe another stimulus is required. So that's been a positive surprise, right? We didn't see a big wave of delinquencies. We're seeing actually a, a delevering of uh, credit card balances. You know, I always say this company exists to solve a problem. And if I could choose between the problem going away and the company existing, of course, I would want the problem to go away. So in the macro sense, consumers uh, being less in debt and less in default is a good thing. So that's been a really cool thing to see. Now, for us, the debt market is not going away. It's more than 10 or $15 billion, depending how you, uh, how you count a year in the US. So there's a lot more work for us to do to capture more market share, work with more consumers, and make a bigger difference. And so after helping so many of these people resolve their debts, I feel like your team must have some pretty interesting insights on where debt typically builds up or what actions people take to pay it down. Where specifically are you seeing people get into debt and why? Yeah, the reality is that people, first and foremost, are leveraged in a way that is many times not healthy, just because of reality, because of how they need to deal with their day-to-day, the, the income that they have and the expenses that they have. It's just, it's just a reality. They can't make enough money to cover for their expenses. But most people fall into debt because of shock, a systemic shock, a healthcare issue, a divorce, a uh, loss of job, or something like that that actually drives them beyond you know, the brink of being in debt. And once you're in debt, it's very hard to get out of that. On average, you owe money to four different lenders. Uh, you get bombarded by phone calls and people trying to collect from you. Uh, you don't get a lot of help. And let me tell you, I won't put you on the spot here and, and run a quiz, but maybe one of your listeners uh, will relate. I don't think any of your listeners can answer any of the coming three questions. One, once you get your first letter from a collection agency, how much time do you have to dispute the facts of the matter under the Federal Collection Practices Act? And what do you need to do to do that? So that's question number one. Question number two, if you get sued, what is the level of evidence, right? Where does the burden of evidence lie and what needs to be the evidence for a debt collector to prevail in court and garnish your wages? And what can they garnish? And three, if your account is out of statute in your state, what actions did you do when you interact with a debt collector will be considered a tolling event that makes the debt, again, in statute and allows the debt collector to sue you for the same debt? Now, if that sounds like legalese to you, you're right, it's legalese. But how can you expect a single mother of three who owes four different debts to be a legal expert and figure out all of this? And that's the big problem, making it understandable, giving people agency, giving them the interface to handle things, allowing them to negotiate with their collectors and with their creditors in a way that just keeps their sanity and make, keeps them informed about what they can and cannot do. These are big big, big goals. And none of us would do well in that situation. We all need help. Well, if there's one thing that I hope is clear from this episode, it's that a lot of people are in debt. It's a big growing problem and they need help. Where have other fintechs failed to help consumers that are in debt? 
I actually saw you had a Twitter thread on this the other day. You know, it's a customer base without disposable income. It's a high cost business to run. Where can fintechs really turn this around? Yeah, we say a lot that there are a lot of great ideas that would have succeeded if they only had distribution. And the problem is that buying distribution is almost impossible when the people you're selling to don't have money. So we feel that we have the best situation. We are the best position to work with consumers in this situation and offer them additional services, which is we're not talking about that now, but we will in 2021 because we make money when the consumer pays for their debt. Because what happens is that the lender basically pays us back commission on the dollars paid on our platform. And because we don't charge interest or fees beyond whatever the lender charges based on their agreement with the consumer, every dollar that the consumer pays goes to pay for what they owe, right? So we make money by the lender giving up some of the money that pays for the consumer's debt. So we feel that we're aligned with everyone. If we help the consumers get more money, pay more for for their debt, have better flexibility, organize their expenses and, and income and so on, we will help them pay more debt. We will succeed. They will succeed. The lender will succeed. It's kind of a win 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 situation that's very rare. And to get there, we had to build this debt collection engine. I want to touch briefly on your company's footprint, Ohad. Beyond your SF operations, you've built out a pretty sizable presence at your second HQ in Kansas City. I hear a lot about Austin and Phoenix and other cities, but not necessarily Kansas City. Can you walk us through the thought process of that expansion? Yeah, people are sleeping in Kansas City, and in a few years, it'll be the next, next, next place. We did research. We did months and months of research with uh, consultants looking in different places. We looked for a place with a direct flight from Kansas, from uh, San Francisco with great call center talent and uh, good engineering schools where we could find engineering talent as well, maybe peel off some talent from large employers there like Garner and Cerner. We looked at cost of living and the trajectory of cost of living, meaning it was not a very expensive place and it was not getting more expensive very quickly like Denver or Boise. And we found incredible people, incredible talent across multiple departments. So not just a call center, although the call center is very important. We're just happy to grow there. A lot of great people. And a few people also moved from San Francisco to Kansas City because honestly, it's a great place to live. Yeah, I love Kansas City. It's a very underrated place. Have you been to any good barbecue there? Any favorite barbecue spots? I've only been to Joe's once and then COVID hit. So I can't wait to come back. How have you had to adjust your strategy for that office or others in this new work from home era and especially all the growth that you're experiencing? There is a very, very small group of people who goes to the office to handle state mandated regulated activities that have to be done from an office. Unfortunately, we really hope that will change. But, you know, they are maybe five, seven people in a 100-person office that's clean twice per day. It's like we're very, very, very careful with masks on and so on. Everybody else works from home. We hope we're going to have an office next year. We don't know when in San Francisco. We don't know when. We don't know when we're going to be able to come back. Hopefully, this vaccine is a real thing and we're going to see actual traction. But yeah, moving online, moving to work from home has been... It's happened in phases. So we did it very quickly in terms of like physically moving people. Then there was a couple months of adjustment and then we gave people a stipend. So they had a good station set up at home. I think we all know that uh, we're over just being at home, but nobody, I don't think, wants to come back to full five days in the office. So I'm hopeful we'll find the right balance in the coming months. 
So how are you onboarding these people and making sure they get the company's culture and any values that you're trying to instill? Have you put any different processes in place? Yeah, definitely always growing with that and kind of need to add more talent and executive talent to the people team to continue to improve that. Look, one of the things that both a burden and a, and a blessing for us as a company is our mission and what we do. Because people who don't think deeply about what we're trying to achieve or think deeply and have some kind of a bias, they don't want to work in a company that works in debt collection. Those who understand what we're trying to achieve, those who understand that what we're building is the only way to actually help consumers and end up joining us, need to have gone through that process of realizing what we're trying to do here. So there's tremendous alignment, even at hundreds and hundreds of people, that I don't think you would get if you'd build a more agreeable product that everybody understands automatically. Having to go through that process of, I understand why this is good for consumers. I understand why this is good for the world. I understand why this is a solution that we actually need to work on. Really improves the alignment once people come on board. Really helps people understand what we're trying to achieve and why our North Star is what it is. But yeah, definitely like a buddy system and better documentation and and so on is is required. And eventually we'll fly people around, I, I hope, when we get back to that. Yeah, hopefully. Moving to partnerships, we're in this really incredible era of fintech partnerships, and True Record is definitely no exception. Your co-founder, Nadav, was in the press complimenting Bloom Credit for helping power True Record's Engage product. Can you talk about how True Record has navigated its thoughts around partnerships and collaborations? I think there are some fintech leaders, some fintech companies uh, that are pretty big, that have uh, big engineering organizations and tend to build instead of partner or buy. Which I always think is very interesting, especially in fintech and regulated areas where there's no chance you've thought of all the edge cases. You're better off working with a vendor. So from the early days, we didn't build anything that we could, that we didn't think was like core, core, core to what we do. Email deliverability, text deliverability, uh, ticketing systems, and so on are all vendor-based. So when we looked at Bloom, it was the same. I mean, do we spend a month or two now going through certifications and engaging with one of the main bureaus, or do we work with Bloom, pay a little bit more, but have a partner? Absolutely. That's what the team decided to do, and I think it was the right decision. What should founders be wary of when picking up so many partnerships and really having this vendor-heavy model versus building it all in-house? We have a very robust vendor onboarding and examination process. Again, because we're highly regulated, we work with large financial institutions, and we've had to reach a level of maturity in terms of how we operate our business that is much higher than any other company that I've seen at this stage. In terms of the people who work here, the level of experience, the type of documentation processes that we have. And I think if you don't have that and you don't have uh, an ability to oversee your vendors and understand what they're doing for you and where they could fail and so on, you're going to have a bad time. So, so that's important. Understanding your vendors and how to work with them is important. Having a fallback for vendors is important. Uh, scaling with vendors is always an interesting thing. So those are, that's what I would think of. And those are some of the things that we've seen through the life of the company. And then wrapping up the episode, we've got a rapid fire round of questions for you. Uh, okay. Let me know ready. Yeah, go. Accomplishment or milestone since starting True Record that you're most proud of? Getting to a point where we're big enough that we can start offering direct-to-consumer services that consumers actually signed up for because they have an emotional connection to the brand, I think it's a proof point that nobody has ever imagined was possible. 
How about three most important attributes when hiring someone? Hmm. Mission alignment, learning curve, and humility. I would even say humility is one way just knowing one's own limits, you know, not being subject to Dunning-Kruger effect and always knowing, you know, what your limits are and, and what else you need to learn, then going and learning. It's just superpowers. So is true record hiring then? And if so, what's the best way for listeners to find roles? Absolutely. So look for me online on Twitter. I post a lot of our jobs. We have a True Accords career Twitter account. And we also have uh, the jobs at the True Accord website. Just Google jobs at True Accord. It's a lever website that you can see. We are hiring across the board. We're growing in engineering. We're growing in sales, business development, dozens and dozens of positions. Uh, Next year is going to be an aggressive push for us. Like I said, hiring 100 people and more. So really an exciting time to join the company. Backing up, what is the Dunning-Kruger effect? The Dunning-Kruger effect is the effect where people with little knowledge on a topic value their knowledge a lot more. They think they know more than they actually do. It's very common. How about if you hadn't started to record, what do you think you would be doing for a living right now? That is a great question. I want to say a writer, and maybe that's going to happen one day. I around the same time that uh, Doctor on Demand and others uh, were started, that was very interesting in the same idea. So maybe that. I don't know. It's a good question. Who is your fintech hero or idol? Max Levchin, hands down. I know you're pretty active on Twitter, but what's uh, the favorite Twitter account that you follow? Favorite Twitter accounts? I follow many. It's hard to say. Marginal Revolution is a very good blog, so I follow their Twitter account to look at their posts. I'm very deep in in fintech, so a lot of the folks who are in the fintech sphere, Fintech Today is a fintech community that I think is very good. I follow them and, and their publications. And others are just people in the community. I think Twitter and just fintech in general, it's smaller than you imagine in terms of the number of founders and the number of funders. And there's actually a pretty funny, I feel, like a um, generational gap. Like there's a boomer group and there's a uh, Gen X uh, millennial group and there's a, a Zoomer group and they don't really mix that much and they work on different problems. So it's pretty funny. So those are the ones. Twitter is an incredible tool for news, for knowledge sharing, for debate. Um, so I follow hundreds and hundreds of accounts, each and every one of them, super helpful. How about your funniest work from home moment? Well, I've been working from home for years. So obviously I've been working, my kids are five and three. So obviously they have been around previously when I was working from home. So obviously like naked babies bombing my, uh, my meetings has happened multiple times. I'm not one of these people who apologizes for kids in the frame. So, you know, I always uh, bring them into the meeting. But that's, that's been fun. <laughs> that's great. And then last one, what's your most contrarian view or hot take about the future of fintech? Probably the most contrarian view I have is that there's value in working with consumers in debt through according to what we're trying to do. Because when you look at it, why aren't there other companies that try to do what right. we do? It's a good question. I think, one, it's hard to grow a VC-funded company at a, a pace that founders would consider would make them rich quickly by working with consumers in debt. But it's one, it's doable. We did it. It was super fucking hard, but we did it and we'll continue to grow. And it's extremely valuable, both from a business perspective, but also from a social perspective. So yeah, that's probably my most contrarian view that what we're doing is valuable and needed and needs to be done more. 
That's a great answer and very CEO. So in closing, True Accord is about seven years old now. What should we be excited about in the coming years for your company? Oh, the expansion into what our world looks like when we not only help consumers pay their individual debt, but empower them to be proud of the journey that they've done in getting out of debt and building equity and going beyond. I cannot be more excited about that. And the next few years are going to be incredibly important along this journey. Awesome. Well, Ohad, I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you for coming on today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It was great to have you on. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk. Thank you.